All right, folks. Let's get into God's Word this morning. We are in Romans chapter 13. Can you, Fernando, can you hear me down there? Okay. Verses 8 to 10. Chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Oleg and Linda, are you able to hear me okay? Okay. You too? I'm surprised, but I'm glad. Uh, yeah, title, The Preeminence of Love. That's the title for today, The Preeminence of Love. <laughs> I come out through there because I thought you were standing over there and then... I switched over because that sun's going to come over the top and I need this little umbrella. Uh, uh, Jerome, what did you just say? So oh, you need to hear it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have just been kind of struck more and more the importance of love in the Christian life. We, we, we talk about... F what's that? Yeah. I mean, we talk about faith a lot. Faith is so important in the Christian life, but love is, is linked just as much to the Christian life as faith is. So, in fact, maybe even more so. Isn't, don't you think love is like the result of faith? Yeah, it's the outflow. Yeah, faith working by love. Okay, let's, let's just stop everybody and let's seek God together and ask his blessing. And then we'll read our text. Father, I pray that the word of God would go forth today, that you'd help me to, to teach it faithfully, Lord. I pray that I, I wouldn't miss the mark, but if there's anything, Lord, that I should say that was not completely of you or completely unmarked, that you'd give discerning hearts and minds to your people, that they would understand that and they'd pick that up. We pray that no one would be deceived by anything that's not true, but that we would clearly see what your word teaches us. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Today, we're going to discuss probably the most popular subject in the world, which is love. Uh, I googled this and I discovered that they estimate there's been more than 100 million love songs written over the centuries. Um, over 50% of the hit songs on the radio uh, at any particular time are love songs. There have been millions of books written about romance and love. 
and you know this as well as I do, there's thousands and thousands of movies where the major plot is love and romance. It's like a major, major popular theme for us today. And today we have a really, that really popular idea of falling in love. <laughs> falling in love. Now, where did that come from? Has that been around since the beginning of history? It's actually a, a novel, a fairly modern idea. I don't know if you realize that. <laughs> if you go back and you read uh, authors in the 1800s or the 1700s, they didn't talk like we talk today. They didn't talk about falling in love. We think that you can't even have a happy marriage unless first you fall in love and then you get married after that. But what is falling in love really referred to? It's talking about something that happens suddenly and uncontrollably to a person and leaves that person vulnerable. It's like falling into a trap or falling ill. So if suddenly and uncontrollably you're in this vulnerable situation, you're in love and there's nothing you've done to make it happen and it just came over you and it, it, there's, that's it. You're in love whether you want it to be or not. <laughs> and you've been zapped. <laughs> I really think that this idea of falling in love has more to do with infatuation, possessiveness, and lust than it does to true love. I want us to think about the modern view of love for a minute and contrast that with the biblical view of love. I looked up the word love in Webster's Dictionary and his definition is a strong feeling of affection. So according to Webster, love is a feeling. It's a strong feeling of affection. And most people would agree to that. Love is a feeling that you get. Well, it is to our modern ears. That's the modern view. But when you go to the Bible, love is not a feeling. I mean, it can include that, but that's not all that it is. I wanted to show you some passages from the New Testament that help us to understand the, a biblical view of love. And the first one's right here in Romans 13. It's in verse 10. Love, or uh, Romans 13, 10. It says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now let's just stop there. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. If love does not do any wrong to a neighbor, what does it do? Good. Love does good to a neighbor. Okay, so I think just that, just that little tidbit is going to help you start to understand what the Bible teaches about love. Um, and then we've got Matthew chapter 5, where we have Jesus speaking to us. And verse 44 and 45. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies... And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So, he says, be like your Father. What is God like? Well, God loves his enemies. God sends the sun on his enemies. God sends rain for the crops of his enemies, so that they can have food. Now, does God have a strong feeling of affection, a, f a warm, fuzzy feeling about his enemies that are rebelling against him? I don't think so. 
but he still decides to do good to his enemies by giving them the sun and giving them rain so that they have crops and food and they can survive and go on and living. Let's look at another one. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus again says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now, we have some parallel thoughts going on here. Love your enemies, and then, parallel to that is, do good to those who hate you. So enemies is parallel to those who hate you, right? That's what an enemy is, someone who hates you. And doing good is parallel to love. So what does it mean to love? <clears throat> it means to do good to, just as we've already seen in Romans 13.10. It, it is not necessarily having a warm feeling of affection towards your enemy. How many of you have just this warm, gushy, lovey feeling for the people that hate your guts? Well, no, we don't. But Jesus wasn't talking about that. He was talking about actively doing good to people that hate you, your enemies. And then we'll also quote the verse that everybody knows, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So when God loved, wasn't talking about a warm or strong feeling of affection. It was talking about his commitment at the sacrifice of his own son to send Jesus Christ to be the redemption for the world. So God's love was his commitment to do this world good by sacrificing himself and sacrificing his son. So if we put all these verses together, I think we can come up with a biblical definition of love that I think is pretty comprehensive and, and pretty sound. And it's actually the very same definition that my buddy Mark Webb back in Mississippi used to use as well. But I see it here in these texts of scripture. It's, here it is, love is a self-sacrificial commitment, or you could say determination, to do another good. Love is a self-sacrificial determination to do another good. It may be accompanied by warm feelings of affection for that person, or it may not be. That's not the important part about it. The part, important part is that it is a commitment, a choice to do good to others. In fact, we may not even like somebody, but we can still love them. There's probably people you can think of right now that you don't really like that well. You'd rather not spend time with them just because you don't, I don't know, they grate on you. But you can love them. You can do them good. You can choose to do good to that person. So, biblical love is something that we choose to do. We don't fall into biblical love. We don't fall in, like people talk about falling in love with Jesus. And maybe we do that because in a sense it is sudden and it is uncontrollable. <laughs> and it does wash over us when the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates us. But the love that we have for other people is not something that we just fall into. It's something that we choose and that we grow into as God sanctifies us by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So as we work through Romans 13, I want to just ask three questions. Who are we supposed to love? How much are we supposed to love? And why are we supposed to love? And I think Romans 13, 8 through 10 answers those questions for us. Okay, who are we to love? Well, our text says in verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. That's who it is, one another. And you might say, well, that's a slam dunk. It's, that's easy. We're to love other Christians. We're to love one another. But not so fast. We might immediately come to that conclusion, but let's think a little bit deeper about this. Let's look at the text. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. One another is defined by the word anyone. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So anyone and love one or um, excuse me, anyone and one another are parallel ideas in verse 8. Do you guys see that? Oh, nothing to anyone. Well, who is this anyone? It's one another. And that's not the only thing we see here. We also see that the one another that we're supposed to love is our neighbor. And the NASB, it comes up three times. For he who loves his neighbor, that's the one another we're supposed to love. Verse 9 at the very end says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. So three times it's emphasized that it's our neighbor. Our neighbor. Well, who's our neighbor? Do you remember when a, a lawyer came to Jesus and said, who is my neighbor? Wanting to justify himself because he didn't want to love people like Samaritans. And so Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan where the Jew is traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was beaten up by robbers. He was left half dead. They took all his money. And the Samaritan walking down the road saw him. First there was a priest and a Levite. They did nothing. But the Samaritan saw the man and he, he tended to his wounds. He poured oil and wine into his wounds. He put the man on his donkey. He took him to an inn. He paid for three days for the man to stay there and recuperate. And Jesus at the end said that this man was a neighbor. The Samaritan was a neighbor to the Jew who had been hurt and robbed. And Samaritans and Jews don't even share the same religion. They're completely different religions. And Jews despised and hated Samaritans. But yet Jesus said the Samaritan was the neighbor to the Jew. <clears throat> Point being, anybody who is in need around you is your neighbor. It's not just your brother or sister in Christ. So when we look at this text in Romans 13, we shouldn't narrowly define it to just other Christians that we're supposed to love. It's your neighbor. So anybody you meet, anybody out there from day to day as you're going through life that you run into who has a need that you can fulfill, that's your neighbor. And God's calling us to love them. So we are to love all people everywhere by shining our light. Sometimes I think we as Christians have a fortress mentality. You know, by a fortress we... We hole up in our fortress and we, we draw up the, the drawbridge so that nobody can get to us and we only hang around with other Christians. So we've got a Christian dentist, a Christian hairdresser, a Christian mechanic, and we like to talk to other Christians and we don't interact with the world at all. 
That, that's not biblical either. How are we to be a light to the world if we're not shining in the world? <laughs> we, we need to be rubbing shoulders with unbelievers. Even developing friendships with them. That's fine. That's good. But just don't compromise your Christian convictions as a result of that relationship with them. So we are to love all people everywhere. That's the answer to the first question. Who are we to love? How much are we to love? Well, let's find the answer there in verse 9. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul writes, he says, You shall love your neighbor, how? How much? As yourself. As much as you love yourself. Now, here he's quoting from Leviticus 19.18. So he's quoting from the Old Testament and applying it. And this is a favorite passage that Jesus quoted as well. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So whoever your neighbor happens to be, that's who we're to love. Years ago, I don't know if people are still teaching this so much, but years ago I remember a lot of teachers were saying that you won't be able to love anybody else until you first learn to love yourself. Have you guys remember that? Are you old enough to remember this teaching? It, it really? Are people still teaching that? It's terrible. <laughs> the, the doctrine's terrible. I mean, because the whole point is that we already love ourselves way too much. So just, you already love yourself, so just love other people. Try to love them as much as you love yourself. Because we have this, remember in, in 2 Timothy, Paul says, he's writing to Timothy and he says, in the last days, people will be lovers of self. Well, we are, we, we're lovers of self. We're selfish, we're self-centered. We have way too much love for ourselves. So, it's not true that we need to somehow get a better self-esteem so that we can then love other people. No, we need to take some of the love that we've, we're pouring on ourselves and give that away to people in need. Have you ever noticed that we have a lot of faults? We have a lot of weaknesses, a lot of faults, sins, and yet we're really gracious to ourselves. Right? We excuse ourselves. Or we will justify ourselves. Uh, we'll let ourselves off the hook pretty easily. But we're slow to do that with other people. Now why, why do we do that? Why are we so gracious to ourselves but yet fairly strict and hard line when it comes to other people? It's because we love ourselves. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 5, no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. We, we heap all this attention and money and whatever and comfort on ourselves and on our flesh and on our bodies. We pursue our own good every single day of the year. But yet, we rarely consider how we can pursue the good of somebody else other than ourselves. We are absolutely committed to our own happiness. I mean, if you're like me, that's, that's what you're like. <laughs> you're committed. You're committed. If you're too hot, you're committed to getting cooler. If you're too cold, you're committed to getting warmer. If you're hungry, you're committed to getting food for yourself. Right? You're committed to meeting all of your needs and all of your wants, if you can. But are we just as 
zealous about pursuing the happiness of others other than ourselves? That's a question to ask. The Bible reveals that because of the fall, we are self-centered, we are lovers of self, we are selfish at the core, and as Christians, God is calling us to move away from that manifestation of our fallenness and to move towards true love, biblical love for other people, which means considering them and doing good for them and to them. So if I have a plate of food and my neighbor has no food, that means I give him half of my food, right? I'm loving him as I love myself, right? Jerome and I were just talking the other day and we were saying, you know, sometimes it's difficult to be the one who is preaching on any given Sunday because you know you're going to have to put in 10 to 15 hours of study and preparation in order to be able to teach the word. And both of us have really demanding jobs where it really requires a lot of us. So to carve out those extra hours and those weeks is not an easy thing. But what I've, what I've just decided is that that's our country. That's how we love you guys. We're willing to give up those hours because we love you and we want you to thrive spiritually. And so love demands sacrifice. Love involves giving up something that we want to help someone gain something they need or they, that they want. So how much are we to love? We're to love others as much as we love ourselves. Jesus even took it a step further. He said that you are to love one another, how much? As I have loved you. And Jesus didn't just love us like giving us half the food and keeping half for himself. He gave it all. <laughs> he, he laid down everything for us. So... But, but this morning, we're just going to stick with what Paul says here. Love each other as you love yourself. But he gives us two reasons why we are to love in this text. First reason is because we owe love to everyone. And the second reason is because love fulfills the law. But let's go back to verse 8. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. He's saying here, love is the one debt that we will never be able to pay off. You'll never be able to discharge this debt of love. You will be paying on this debt of love for the rest of your life. You'll never get to a point where you say, oh, I've loved and I've loved and I've loved, now I don't have to love anymore, I'm done with it. <laughs> no. You, you'll have to continue loving for the rest of your life until you see Jesus face to face. And guess what? Even in, in eternity, we will be expressing love to God and love to others for, throughout eternity. Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon on heaven called Heaven, a World of Love. It's an awesome sermon. But that's, that's true. So, this is a debt that we owe. And we owe this debt to everyone. He says, owe nothing to anyone. Now, when you come to Romans 13, 8, you might think, that's such an abrupt change of subject. In verses 1 to 7, he's talking about government and our responsibility to the government, right? And then in verse 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And so you wonder, has he completely switched 
topics from verses 1 to 7 to verses 8 through 10. And I would say, no, he hasn't. There is a connection between verse 7 and verse 8. And to get the connection, you really need to read this in the, the ESV. I'll read it to you in the ESV. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Do you see? He's, he's playing off of that word owe. There are certain things that we owe. We owe our taxes. It's a debt. It's an obligation that we have, right? We owe to pay customs. We owe respect to government leaders. We owe fear to government leaders. And then he says, but don't owe anyone anything except this debt, which is to love one another. Now, you might think this verse teaches that we ought to never borrow money. Because if you borrow money, then you owe somebody money, right? Is that what this is teaching? Owe nothing to anyone. Let's just take those words. First four, first four words of verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone. George Mueller believed that's what it was teaching. But actually, he's the only one I've ever found that did believe that. I researched a lot of different commentators today and there's not a single commentator that I found that believes that it means that, we sh that it's wrong to have a debt. And the reasons they don't believe, like George Mueller, is because elsewhere in scripture, um, God allows debt. God allows lending. God allows borrowing. In fact, I'll just uh, read to you from Matthew 5.42. Jesus said, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So if someone wants to borrow from you and Jesus said, go ahead and lend it to him, that means it must be okay to lend and it must be okay to borrow. So here in Romans 13, 8, when Paul says, owe nothing to anyone, he can't be meaning that it's a sin to have any kind of a debt whatsoever. You know, is it a sin to borrow money from the bank to buy a house? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that's the point of this passage. I think the point is that if you do so owe somebody something, pay it. If you borrow money from the bank to buy a house, pay your mortgage. If you borrow money from the bank to buy a car, pay off that car payment every month. See, if we don't do that, and I've, I've seen this happen, I think it happens fairly frequently, where Christians want things, and they don't have the money for them. And so they charge up their credit cards to get the things they want. And pretty soon their credit cards are maxed out, so they're not able to make the payments. They just don't have enough money to pay, make all these payments on their credit cards or their, their bank loans. And so eventually they just file bankruptcy, so they can be absolved from all of this debt that they had accumulated. And folks, that's not the will of God. If we, if we accrue a debt, the scripture teaches that we should pay off that debt. That's part of having integrity. Now I know there are some situations that are not like I'm describing now, where people are actually in um, an emergency situation and there's nothing that they can do. 
But I'm talking about people who have been lavish with their buying. They've been unwise with it. And now they've got bills that they can't pay. And so they just say, okay, I'll follow chapter 11 or chapter 7 or whatever it is. And I won't have to pay any of this money back. That's really tantamount to stealing. So that's one practical lesson we can learn from verse 8. It's not really the main point of this text, but it's something that we can glean. In fact, Proverbs 22.7 says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. So wisdom would teach us to be very careful when we borrow money. It doesn't say that we can't, or that it's sinful to do so, but just exercise wisdom if you're going to borrow money. You're going to become the slave of the lender. In fact, during the first 10 years of Debbie and my marriage, we decided we weren't even going to get a credit card. Because it was actually, I think I was just afraid what could happen if we had credit cards and if we got too much debt. I just didn't want to go down that direction. So I remember going on trips when we were going to check into a hotel. Uh, we would have to send them a check in the mail days ahead of time very inconvenient but that's what we used to do <laughs> and then finally after 10 years we decided okay let's get a credit card but but we made a decision that if if it ever came to the point where we couldn't pay it off at the end of the month that we just rip up the cards because we didn't want to become the lender's slave and I think both of us had a healthy fear of what could happen if we weren't really careful so just it's just wisdom when it comes to lending and borrowing. So Paul's point here is that love is the debt that all of us owe, but why do we have that debt to love all people? Where did that debt come from? Well, let me show you. From Romans chapter 1 verse 14. Romans 1.14, Paul says, I am, and the word there literally is debtor. I am debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul is saying here that he is a debtor to preach the gospel to all people. Greeks, barbarians, and the people in Rome. Everyone. Everywhere that he has opportunity to, he's a debtor to get the gospel to all people. Now, why was Paul a debtor to get the gospel out to everybody? Well, it's because of the command of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus said in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And Paul felt like he was under that commission of Jesus Christ to obey that command. And so now he is a debtor to all people to get the gospel to them. So likewise, you and I are debtors to love all people because Jesus Christ has commanded us to love all people. So we have this debt, this obligation to love all people everywhere. So that's the second question. First, who are we to love? Secondly, how much are we to love? We are to love as ourselves. Third question is why are we to love? Well, because we are debtors. We are under obligation from Jesus Christ, commanded by him to love all people. But then secondly, because love fulfills the law. And that's what he takes up mostly in this section, verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> 
He says, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So love fulfills the law, that's the point. Now, on the one hand, Paul has already told us some interesting things about the law in the book of Romans. He told us in chapter 6, verse 14, you are not under law, but under grace. In chapter 7, verse 4, he says, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. In chapter 7, verse 6, he says, you've been released from the law, having died to that by which you were bound. So we're not under law, we died to the law, and we have been released from the law. And he told us those very things in the, the same book. But then he tells us you need to love because when you love, you're going to fulfill the law. So are those things at odds with each other? Those ideas? Well, look at Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Paul says, So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, from Romans 8, 4, we can see that it's God's will that we fulfill the law. Even though we're not under it, even though we're released from it, and we've died to it, it is still a good thing for us to fulfill it. And the only way we can fulfill it is by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, according to verse 4. See, all the law can do is hold up a standard of perfection and then condemn someone when they fall short of keeping it. That's what the law is able to do. But if you're walking by the Spirit, he says in verse 4 here of Romans 8, you, you are able to fulfill that law. I don't think he means perfectly, but in general terms. There's an old saying that goes like this, do this and live, the law commands, but, gives me, but give me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly, and gives me wings. So the law says, do this and live. But it doesn't give me feet or hands to do this and live. But the gospel tells me to fly and gives me wings in order to do it. You see? So, does this mean that God doesn't care if we fulfill the law? If we're lawbreakers, does that matter to God? Oh well, yes, it does. If we break the law, God's law, we're sinning. Sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John chapter 3. So God is concerned that we fulfill his law. But here's the trick. You'll never fulfill the law by focusing on the law as though it were your husband. In fact, we died to the law. We died to our old husband, which was the law, so that we could be married to Christ, and now we bear fruit for God because we're married to the one who's risen from the dead. So we don't fulfill the law by focusing on it. We fulfill the law by walking by the Spirit and focusing on Jesus Christ, and through that relationship with Christ, now we bear fruit for God and we fulfill the law. Make sense? Okay. See, the law is an expression of God's moral character. It's an expression of God's will. 
So though we're not under it, yet by the Spirit we can fulfill it. Now what law was Paul talking about here in Romans 13 when he said that love fulfills the law? Well notice verse 9, he gives us four commands. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Where do we find those commands? The Ten Commandments, yep. And the Ten Commandments are basically split into two parts. You've got the first four, which are our relationship to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. So those first four all deal with our relationship vertically to God, right? The next six deal with our relationship to man. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, and covet. So Paul quotes four commands from the second table of the law, which deal with our relationship to other people. When he wants to talk about how love fulfills the law. Love fulfills our obligation to other people, is what he's saying. So if you love your neighbor, you're not going to commit adultery with his wife, right? If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder your neighbor. You're not going to steal from your neighbor. You're not going to covet what your neighbor has. You won't poison your neighbor's dog or throw garbage over his fence. <laughs> when I was a kid, we came back from Washington because we had relatives up there and we liked to, we'd capture these gardener snakes and bring them home with us. And I remember, I don't know why we did this, but we were always getting into trouble as kids. And we took these snakes and threw them over the fence into the pool of our neighbor. And he, he picked up the snake out of his pool and he opened our front door and threw the snake into our house. <laughs> I don't know why I told you that story, but <laughs> that actually happened. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was not. Uh, loving your neighbor means you're not going to park your car in his space. You're not going to keep his lawnmower for an extra month after he lends it to you. You're not going to drool over his new Porsche, right? You won't do those kind of things if you love your neighbor. The cool thing is that we don't have to memorize 400 some laws and check them off every day. All you have to remember every day is the word love. Four, four letters, L-O-V-E. Whenever you're meeting somebody or you're with somebody, just let that word love pop into your head. That's your responsibility when you're with this person, whoever it is, your husband, your wife, your children, your next door neighbor, people you work with, whoever that person is, the lady at the grocery store, people over social media, let love be the watchword that guides you. That's all you have to remember. And if you love in that situation, you're gonna fulfill God's law in that situation. So, as we wrap this up this morning, we're left with one huge question, at least I am. And the huge question I'm left with is, how do we do this? <laughs> how do we love people the way God has called us to love them? It's got to be possible because you were commanded to do it, but how? How do we tap into the power necessary to love people the way God wants us to? How do we access this power? Well, let's take a look at that. We're told in Romans 8, 4, 
that we fulfill the law, that we fulfill the law by walking by the Spirit. But we're also told that love fulfills the law, right? So if love fulfills the law, and if we walk by the Spirit, we fulfill the law, that means that if we walk by the Spirit, we can love. Do you see the, my, my reasoning there? So the way that we can actually love other people is we have to walk by the Spirit. Whatever that means, that's how we do it. You don't have the power or the strength within yourself, your fallen nature, to be able to do this, to obey this command. You need God's power to do this. Now if you go back to Romans 5, and verse 5, I think here's the first step. Paul says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So here we go. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now is this talking about our love for God or God's love for us? It says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. And whoever, I think Debbie just said that, it's God's love for us. I agree with that because three verses later, he says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. In the context, he's talking about God's love towards us. And when the Holy Spirit is given to you, he pours out that love that God has for you within your heart. So that's the beginning. That's the beginning work of the Holy Spirit to help us love. We, we realize this wonderful awesome love that our Creator and Redeemer has for us. The Holy Spirit pours it out. Now later in Colossians, Paul, I'll just read this to you. Paul says in chapter 1 verse 29, he says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. So Paul was... Paul realized that there was this power that was mightily working inside of him. He experienced this power working within him. And brothers and sisters, we need to experience that same power working within us. If we are to fulfill the law, if we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, we've got to experience this power that mightily works within us. But how do we get it? That's the question. Well, remember Jesus taught in John 15? He said, abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. And on top of that, if you abide in me, he says, you will bear much fruit. So there, this abiding in Jesus is key to being able to produce fruit. But what does it mean to abide in Jesus? We just keep going back one step, one step, one step, trying to figure out the source and how to do this, right? Well, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Do you see there is a connection between us abiding in Jesus and Jesus' words abiding in us? Do you see that? So that's going to be helpful. Now, the, the key, I think, is the word of God in all of this. In Ephesians 5, I'm going to compare two passages, one from Ephesians 5 and the other from Colossians 3. So I want you to put your thinking caps on here. 
And if you're able to, open up to these passages and read them with me. Okay? Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then notice what flows out of this being filled with the Spirit. Verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Okay, so the command, be filled with the Spirit, and then this is how it will look like. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks for all things. Okay, so you've got that down? Now go to Colossians 3. And look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Does that sound anything like Ephesians 5 to you? The exact same things that were supposed to be flowing out of being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5 are now flowing out of the Word of Christ richly dwelling within us in Colossians 3. Do you guys see that? I hope you see the connection here. Colossians and Ephesians are twin epistles. They're very similar to each other. Paul uses different language, a little bit different in Ephesians than Colossians, but the ideas are very, very similar. And so we are told that to be filled with the Spirit is really to, be, to allow the Word of Christ to richly dwell within us. So my whole point here is, if you want the power of God to love, you need to be allowing the Word of Christ to richly dwell within you. That's bottom line. Which means that we don't read one page of our daily bread and think that's letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. That's not. I'm, I'm saddened when I find Christians, all they ever do is read somebody else's devotional and they never read the Bible. And they never struggle with understanding what the Bible actually says. And it's hard work sometimes to work through a passage and try to figure out what does he mean and what's the connection between this paragraph and this paragraph. And you really have to think. It's work. <laughs> and I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to apply yourself to the Word of God. Be in the habit, the daily habit of letting the Word of Christ, which we could say is the Word of God, richly dwell, not just dwell in you, but richly dwell within you, so that you are, and this comes from the navigators, you are hearing it, so you're hearing it preached, like right now, you are reading it for yourself, you are studying it, you are meditating on it, and you are memorizing it. They, they use the five fingers of a hand for those five aspects of the Word of God. And if you are doing those five things with the Word of God, it's going to richly dwell within your life. And maybe ask yourself, how much time do I spend in the Word of God and with God versus how much do, time do I spend on other recreations and pleasures in my life? And if it's way out of balance, then perhaps the Word of God is not richly dwelling in you. So take this to heart, brothers and sisters. If you want power, it's going to come mediated through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The Spirit uses the Word and He produces power through us to accomplish the will of God, which is to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourself. But we're going to have to stay connected to Christ through His Word for that to happen.
I think sometimes we read a passage like today's passage, love your neighbor as yourself, and we think, yeah, I want to love in glamorous, (laughs) impressive ways. I want to be like Mother Teresa. I want to go to Calcutta and love the lepers over there. But the word neighbor really means one who is near. We are supposed to love one who is near. So who's near to you? Well, if you're married, your spouse is near to you. If you have children, your children are near to you. If you live in a neighborhood, all the people that live around you are near. God wants you to start right where you're at and start loving people that you're rubbing shoulders with every single day. Whoever those people are. If you work in a company and you're talking and uh, conversing with people in your company like I do, I, I need to be focused on loving those people. So this is the thought that came to me. What would happen if all of us, every time we met somebody, immediately thought, I must love this person. I'm not focused on anything else right now other than how can I love this person? That's the only thing you have to think of. The only thing you have to remember. (laughs) How can I love this person that I'm interacting with right now? And if you do love that person, you're going to fulfill the law. God will be well pleased. You're going to have a dynamic Christian testimony before the world. And God will be honored. God will be glorified. So may God enable us to love our neighbor as ourself by the power of the Spirit through the richly indwelling word that he receives the glory. And so, Lord, we do pray that this morning. We ask for your help, Lord. We pray that your word would richly dwell within us day by day. We pray, Lord, that we would be meditating on it and memorizing it. That, Lord, this would not be something that we just hastily get through in five minutes so we can get on to something else we really want to do, but that this would become a joy. Just like in Jeremiah, it became the joy and the rejoicing of my heart, he said. And may that be the case with us, Lord that your word would just come home to our hearts in ways that produce joy and and delight. Help us to remember, Lord, just this word love. Bring that to our remembrance. Every time we're in someone else's company or presence, bring that word back to our minds, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.